Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Now, uh, chapter 6, step 6, restructuring my life to rely on God's grace and His Word. Uh, Making room for peace and hope in my life. Um, You know, there's kind of an inverse relationship between depression and anxiety, peace and hope. Uh, The more depression and anxiety that we have, the less peace and hope we have. The more peace and hope we have, the less room there is for depression and anxiety. And the way that we're going to approach this chapter is going to be to try to leverage it from both angles. Uh, So we're going to talk about some strategies uh, that try to reduce the amount of depression and anxiety. We're going to talk about other strategies that try to increase the amount of peace and hope knowing that the more we shrink here, the more room we got for that, the more room we got for this, the more we crowd out some of that. Does that make sense? Now, uh, as we get ready to go into this, uh, I think uh, if there's any perfectionist in the room, we need to hear this. Uh, There is no perfect way to climb out of a negative mindset or a toxic pit, but climbing you must. If you're getting excited going, now, he's going to tell me exactly what I need to do. These are the steps. These are the strategies. This is what it's going to look like. Great. This is what I'm looking for. He's got a thick notebook. He seems to know what he's talking about. He's going to give it to me. This is great. Um, What we're going to do uh, is we're going to give a buffet. Uh, Now, uh, as opposed to when we went through something similar in the suffering paradigm and we just kind of gave a large buffet, we're going to divide this buffet into some food groups, if you will, some, some different areas of strategy. Uh, but this is where you with a friend or with a small group member or a counselor would be asking the question, which of these strategies or kinds of strategies best fit uh, the experience that I'm having? And the first collection of strategies is just our immediate negative emotion response plan. Uh, Sounds very formal, I know. But the idea is starting well is the first part of finishing well. What we do in the early stages of that, oh no, I feel depressed, oh no, I feel anxious, is powerfully important to whether that becomes a quagmire that we get stuck in, or whether it is more of a puddle that we move through. And so the first thing that I would say is just refuse to beat yourself up. Uh, Don't allow shame to magnify the experience of depression and anxiety. Uh, This is where I love the lines from the hymn, Before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me of despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. That Satan loves to take those moments where we've messed up, and say, look, see what kind of schmuck you are. This is just who you are. It's who you've always been. It's all you're ever going to be. You're dirt. Wallow in it. And Jesus says, I took care of that. Look at who I made you to be, what I've guaranteed. Let's just take the next step. Um, 
Now, I think another part of that immediate response is reframing the question. So much of depression and anxiety can be reduced to bad questions. I don't think it's the totality of it, but the way we frame our questions matter. Uh, One of the counselors that I follow closely says, we live and die based on the questions we ask. Questions move us somewhere. And so, uh, we can ask the question, how am I going to be able to do everything? If we just, if you think right now about all that you've got to do this next week, uh, this is an exercise in what not to do before we get into an exercise. Just let your mind roam for about three seconds and think of everything that you've got to get done in the next seven days. Now ask yourself the question, how am I going to get all of that done? You start to feel uncomfortable? That's bad counselor talking up here. Um, What if we replace that question of, what is my next step of obedience? That's a very different kind of question. Or even that idea of, how am I going to get everything done? What if we begin to insert the question, what is God going to do next? What if I were not the only actor on the scene? What if I begin to ask the question, what parts of this situation am I responsible for? And what parts are God calling me to trust Him or to trust others? What if in just that moment, I had a few key questions that reoriented the way that I was thinking about the anxiety and depression that I was facing? I think that could make a big impact. Run to God, not away from hope. Again, hopefully what we talked about in that that step of repentance just allows us to see that repentance isn't God about isn't about God being the dissatisfied cosmic cop who's scowling at us going again really are you serious uh, it is it is God inviting his child going i see the health of our relationship And that when life becomes hard, you come to me and you turn to me. You expect me to be loving and forgiving and guiding. And this is good. And that's why Ed Welch would say, Act on the grace that God gives you today. Wait confidently for the grace God will give you for tomorrow. Fear and anxiety always want more information. Uh, Fear and anxiety think that knowledge is power. Uh, In response, your Heavenly Father confides in you. He's given you Scripture. He's given you what your fears and anxieties are asking for. He is giving you information about the future. But I would say, as much as that, maybe even more than that, He's giving you Himself. He's not just giving you a map uh, to say, here are the steps that you need to take. Get them. You got this. He is committed to walk with you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I am the good shepherd who will walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, a second part of a strategy. Stewarding your body. Uh, Emotions are both physical uh, and cognitive. They are immaterial mind, that little voice in our head, and our material bodies. And how we care for our body significantly impacts the emotions that we experience. So if you struggle with anxiety, reduce the amount of caffeine. You don't want a bunch of energy drinks uh, and coffee all day long. 
If, if you struggle with depression, don't consume mass quantities of a depressant that is alcohol. Both of those just kind of think about it. It seems like a bad idea. Sleep. Sleep is so important to our emotional regulation. I will spare you all of the physiology that goes into it, but just trust me. One of the best things that you can do to manage depression and anxiety is to sleep for an eight-hour block at night on a regular basis. Give you some considerations here. Talk to your physician if that's a particularly difficult thing for you. Balanced diet. Again, this is the part that just, when people talk about being chemically imbalanced, um, yes, I think there's some validity to that. We, in the talk that we did on the, on the mental illness aspect, we look at some of those kinds of factors. But if we just ask, where does our body get what it needs to be chemically balanced? It gets it from the stuff we put in here. And we can't eat a junk food diet and expect a balanced life. And in addition to just the healthier components that we're putting into our body, when we begin to make choices like we're talking about here, we begin to live as if our choices matter. And that makes a huge difference in our experience of depression and anxiety. Increased exercise. Just give you a couple of things there that say exercising for about 30 minutes for three times a week will make a huge difference in our experience of depression and anxiety. Again, there are all kinds of physiological things that I could take you through about the impact of stress on the body and the free radicals and how it gets stored up and the increase of lactic acid when we do cardiovascular exercise and acid is one of those things that absorbs stuff that gets all junked up in our muscles and then the increased blood flow tends to be this filtering system and all of a sudden it goes out through our kidneys and all of that detrimental stuff that we were talking about and the toll that anxiety has on our body, God gave us a way to filter that out. It's called going for a walk in nature, going for a jog, riding on a bike. Those kinds of things are a wonderful way uh, to filter those things out. Uh, breathe. And you go, I wasn't really planning on stopping breathing. Let me, let me explain that a little differently here. Because this is one where, you know, I mean, counselors get a bad rap. Amen? I mean, it's time when people just think counselors are totally idiots. And there's times when people come to me and they're like, if you tell me to breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth, or if you tell me to go to my happy place, I may hit you. Uh, okay, I may t- I'm not going to tell you to go to your happy place. I may talk to you about breathing, but let me explain physiology of what's going on. Okay? Because this is where counselors tell you what to do, they don't tell you why to do it, and you wind up thinking we're dumber than we are. Um, now, one of the places that the body monitors to determine whether it is safe or in danger, is the nasal cavity. When the nasal cavity is cool, body tends to think everything's chill. We're in a good place. When the nasal cavity gets hot, the body takes that as a sign of danger and it kicks in the adrenal system. Now the adrenal system is like a microphone to the emotions. Okay. Now you think about an athlete, they're running down on the field, where do they start to breathe? All the air is coming in and out through the mouth. There's no cold air coming through the nose. The nasal cavity heats up. The body senses that. It says you need adrenaline. When we start to get upset, what happens to our breathing pattern? We start taking short, choppy breaths in through our mouths. We start to bypass the nasal cavity. 
the body senses the increased heat in our navel cavity and says, they need a boost of adrenaline. No, we don't! Okay? Now, when we take a long deep breath in through our nose, out through our mouth, what we're doing is we're cooling that sensor off and telling the pituitary gland to chill out. It, and it's not like hitting the brakes on your car. It's more like taking your foot off the gas. Okay? Interesting fact. This is why when people think that they need to smoke a cigarette uh, in order to relax, they're wrong. They're not addicted to nicotine. Nicotine is a stimulant. You don't take a stimulant to relax. They're not addicted to nicotine if they smoke to relax. They're addicted to breathing. Because uh, when you smoke, what do you do? Take your smoke break, you get away, you start taking these long, deep breaths. It's powerful. Not because of the cancer stick hanging out of your mouth, but because of the wonderful life practice uh, that you're doing, that God said, I designed your body in such a way that you could tell your body to chill out by how you breathe. Now, uh, an extended negative emotion response plan. Uh, you know, if initially we did kind of a first aid type thing, this is where we do more emotional hygiene. Listen to your emotions with doubt. And hopefully, most everything that we've done to this point gets you to the spot where you go, that sentence makes a lot more sense to me than it would have a few steps ago. I can listen to my feelings. I can listen to what my emotions are telling me. My emotions are telling me what's most important to me. They're telling me what I want. They're telling me what I believe. They're telling me what I trust. I can listen to that. I don't have to get all freaked out about what I hear. Because God's for me. Whatever guilt or shame is there, He's looking at me saying, I got this. Just listen. Okay. I articulate it. That way, once I begin to put it into words... Like most of the stuff that goes on in my head, it doesn't make near as much sense when it comes out of my mouth. And when it's not nearly as convincing, it's not half as scary, then I begin to challenge it with truth. I can do some stuff with it. And so, listen to your emotions with doubt, but don't overanalyze. Uh, don't think that every emotional experience is a riddle that you've got to crack. Uh, there's times when you go, this one doesn't make sense. I just need to make the next healthy choice. And whatever that is, let me do that. There will be, time, there will be enough times when what's going on with my emotions are painfully obvious. And I go, I, I'm going I'm to learn from that. I'm going to let that be the time when the riddle kind of pops and cracks and I'm good with it. And there's going to be other times when I don't get it, but I'm going to trust God and I'm going to make the next healthy choice uh, that's available to me. Practice the opposite. Now, this is not some internal version of reverse psychology. It is just a recognition that our life is filled with mindless moments. I can remember growing up on a farm in western Kentucky. I don't think there is... I think... Okay, I'll say two things. I think the two most cognitively unhealthy things in terms of profession that can be done is sitting in a planner, a John Deere 4440 with a 16-row uh, kind of soybean platform on the back, uh, and long-distance truck driving. 
Because I can remember being on the farm in western Kentucky, and, and for an entire day, it consisted of driving down this row, turning back, coming down. And, and they make those hoppers big enough now, you can do that for like an hour before you've got to refill that bad boy back up and you get to talk to another human being. We didn't have cell phones back then. And so you're just in there, and you let some kind of rotten thought get going. And you get worried about something. You think, what is this? What is that? And you get going. And those mindless moments become the footholds that just undermine all of the healthy stuff I'm doing when I'm being intentional. Stuff like mowing the yard, washing the dishes, driving to work. Those, if you're one of those people like me who struggles to go to sleep and just turn your brain off, that time when you're sitting there with nothing to do to distract yourself because you're trying to go to sleep and if you were doing something, you wouldn't be... Duh. Let's not get started there. Um, but... Those are some of the moments when, if I can begin to know this is what happens when I am anxious or depressed in those moments. And let me do something that is the opposite of that. Let me find something that engages my mind. Uh, and, and so, again, if you, that time before going to sleep, listening to music where your mind can kind of latch on to something that's, okay, probably not rock or hip-hop or something like that, but something a little more soothing. If, if you know there's times when uh, there's several therapies that are just based on what we do when we get anxious, and they just try to train you to physically respond differently because our emotions respond to our body postures. I mean, if you want to try this, just kind of do this for about seven minutes and see if you don't start to get worked up. Because the only time we do that is when we're really upset. If you kind of sit in more of a relaxed posture, your mind will begin to listen to your body. There are times when we combat our emotions from our heart to our hands. And there are times when we battle our emotions from our hands to our heart. And I think both are biblically legitimate. Don't be a perfectionist. Or maybe better said... Uh, learn to be a moderate perfectionist. Because you say don't be a perfectionist and all the perfectionists are going to go, what is the fastest, most efficient way in order to overcome perfectionism? Broken question. Um, but I give you some things there to consider. Uh, life management. Another area that we can look at some things. Uh, sometimes we get so engaged with managing our emotions that we neglect managing our life and it's those areas of neglecting life management that's fueling our emotions. So if you're stressed out about your finances, don't read a book. Make a budget. Um, if, if you've got too much to do and you're trying to cram 250 hours worth of good stuff in any given week, don't just you know, get a day planner and try to find a way to become more efficient. Because if you figure out how to do 200 hours worth 160, in a 160 hour week, you're just going to think, now I've got room for more stuff. No, you don't! Uh, you need to cut some of that out. Simplify. Uh, one of the old church fathers, he said, most of what plagues the human condition is the fact that we are unable to sit quietly in our rooms. Yet, we just tie so much of our sense of satisfaction to so many things. And in a day and age when we are blessed with so many opportunities, um, 
it, we just need to be able to simplify and say if these few things are good, life's great. And this other stuff over here that's the icing over the cake, I like it. I'm just not putting my heart on it. I entrust my heart here. These things, they're nice bonuses. It, uh, and I think that idea of options is what Ed Welch is getting at. He says, freedom revolves, resolves the fear and anxiety associated with persecution and oppression. Again, as Americans, we like freedom because it, there's certain stresses that it gets rid of. But it increases the fear of personal failure, which is one reason Soren Kierkegaard uh, said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. With freedom comes more choices, which means more opportunities to get it wrong. Freedom or oppression, pick your poison. I choose freedom. Um, but both contribute to our fears and anxieties. And so again, I do. I choose freedom. I think the anxieties that come with that are much better. Um, but I need to recognize that when I am given greater freedoms, then it becomes an incumbent responsibility for my own emotional health to live more simply than my freedoms might permit. Externally, address problems. means if something's going wrong, address it. Sometimes people want to know how to get over their emotions without addressing the problems that's triggering. So if you need help for something that you don't know how to do, ask. If you're bitter and you're ruminating over something over and over again and that's just emotionally plaguing you, forgive. If you have a secret uh, that the sense of just not being moaned makes every moment feel like it is a moment of unrest, confide. If there's some obvious change that is needed, do it! And I'm not trying to be simplistic when I say that. But if there are external things that you just kind of know are nagging in the background, don't think you're going to fix those things through the back door of your emotions and never have to address them. If those kind of external factors are there, address them. And then internally, learn from your mistakes. And by mistakes here, I mean non-moral mishaps. Again, this is probably where parts of this presentation become a little more autobiographical. This one was big for me. Because again, if we go back to uh, with the motives part, what did I say was kind of my primary motive? It's that idea that if I do everything right, then nothing can be weighed down upon me. Well, what that meant was, I had to live a life with no mistakes. When when I got to the point that I could allow myself the freedom to make a mistake. And it was okay. Life became a lot more fun. Um, I began to find that a lot of humor was in the mistakes. A lot of freedom. A lot of letting people get to know me. Um, not just emotions, but relationships expanded significantly. A lot of opportunities and just the kinds of risk that weren't your foolish view of risk, but just I had to be willing for this to go wrong if something greater was going to happen. Those kinds of things that allowed for a level of effectiveness that was just much more satisfying. Uh, that is probably one of the things in terms of life management 
that was most liberating for me. I don't say that in order to say, ah, this is what it's going to be for you, but just to give you some of kind of my journey and map with that. I think another part of our creating this plan is our pursuit of joy plan. Battling depression and anxiety can make us very negative towards ourselves. Because when we're battling depression and anxiety, we can very quickly just begin to notice those things that are wrong. And if we do that, we can have the best plan in the world. It's just not going to be sustainable. We're going to wear out and burn out. And so I give you a few things here um, to, just to think about that should be part of what you're doing in your battle with depression and anxiety. Engage your interest. Then, what things do you enjoy? Again, you come to many of these, you know I enjoy coaching my boys' sports teams. Uh, that is a joy to me at many different levels. If I'm going to be intentional in my pursuit of joy plan, that means as I think through the family calendar, that needs to be on there. Uh, distract yourself. Again, this is, goes back to that aspect of one of the most prominent places for anxiety and depression to crop back up is in those mindless moments. What are some of those things that you can fill the mindless moments with uh, that that would allow those moments to be less of a foothold for depression and anxiety. Savor every moment. You know, the reality is, most days aren't special. It, and if we just, if we take depression and anxiety, you know, one of the things that make depression and anxiety attractive is it gives kind of this epic quality to every day. I mean, if I got something major to be upset about, to be scared of, to think might crash, it makes today significant. If it's just Tuesday, that's kind of boring. I don't know why I hate Tuesdays, but Tuesday is always the day that I pick for that kind of example. But if it's and so depression and anxiety are epic. Tuesday's boring. If I can't savor the sweet quality of just having a meal with my family, of the kind of whatever the task is that I'm doing that doesn't seem all that great, but it contributes to something, and if I can't savor the goodness of that, then the epic nature of depression and anxiety is just going to win. So, that's part of our pursuit of joy plan. Strategic spiritual disciplines. Now, uh, we, we don't engage um, spiritual disciplines for therapeutic purposes. Um, but, if spiritual disciplines are really expressions of God's design for our life, then they should have a healthy impact. And so, in the context here, I just draw out a few that I think merit our attention. Bible study. Again, think about it. How much of our struggle with depression and anxiety is because of the bad content in our thinking? It's just because of the lies and disproportions that seep into how we think about life. Would saturating our mind in truth help with that? Yeah, I think so. Prayer and worship. 
How much of our struggle with depression and anxiety is just our thinking caving in on itself? If, if there was something that got our thinking outwardly oriented, that, that prevented it from caving in here, but took it somewhere else, would that help with our experience of depression and anxiety? Yes. Um, again, I'll spare you many of the empirical research that wouldn't necessarily say for evangelical Christian reasons this is beneficial. But one of the leading treatments for depression and anxiety right now is mindfulness training, uh, which is really just being able to direct our thoughts somewhere on purpose. Uh, and that is much of what prayer and worship is intended to do. Silence and meditation. Again, how much of our depression and anxiety is just the inability to rein in our thoughts? If we could sit quietly, not as a form of isolation, but just letting the dust of our soul to settle, and kind of coming to know where we were in a given moment. Would that help us with our struggle of depression and anxiety? I think it would. Journaling. How much of our experience of depression and anxiety is just because of the seemingly disconnected pointlessness of life? I don't feel like life is going anywhere. Yesterday doesn't contribute to today, doesn't contribute to tomorrow, last week to this week to next week, month, year. It, it just all feels random. Yet, what if, what if there was a spot where I was tracing my journey and, and I was tracking what God was doing, where I was writing down those things that God was laying on my heart. I was praying over those and seeing what was being done. Might that help with my struggle with depression and anxiety? I think it could. Again, I give you resources here uh, that, are, that are just intended. If one of those seems to fit, because again, this is a buffet. This entire step is a buffet where you're going... What fits my struggle best? Uh, where you can follow up on those more. And then I, I give you a little chart where you could just kind of rank in those areas, which of those do you think would be most important for you? And uh, what, what is that area of life that needs to change? Um, and how would that particular activity, uh, whichever one you're selecting from that area, how would it combat it? Because... Again, oftentimes it's the what without the why that makes good advice seem cliche. I mean, think about it. That whole take a deep breath kind of thing. Uh, if you don't know why you're doing that, you do that about five times real fast because if it's going to help, if I do it more, it's going to help. You wind up hyperventilating or choking. You go, that was dumb. Well, you did that because you, it wasn't that you didn't understand the what. It's because you didn't have the why that connected it and made it work. So as you go through this chapter and you select whatever pieces that you're going to use, fill out that chart so that you connect the why with the what, so that you don't get distracted by the behavior or the activity to the point that it makes it less beneficial than it would be. And so after step six, uh, and we make that kind of plan, we begin to look to implement the new structure. 